Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Daniel chapter 12. And uh, last, actually not last week, I wasn't here last week. Two weeks ago we were in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, this is all one continual prophecy that the angel is speaking to Daniel. We're kind of picking it up in the middle in chapter 12. But back in chapter 11, the angel is telling Daniel about a great tribulation that will be coming in the future. And he starts talking about the king. And uh, we talked about that two weeks ago, who the king was. We don't really know. I mean, we don't know other than that he's the Antichrist. But we're giving him a description of him. He's self-willed. He's self-exalting. He's blasphemous. And he is going to prosper. He will be prosperous for a time. In Daniel chapter 11, we're also told that he's going to, or Daniel was told that this king, this Antichrist as we know him, will enter the glorious land. The glorious land is, of course, Israel. His palace will be between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, which would be Jerusalem, I'm assuming. And uh, we're also told that there's going to be world war, um, but his kingdom is going to come to an end. That was in chapter 11. In chapter 12 now, the angel is going to kind of shift gears a little bit and he's going to talk to Daniel about his people, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Because, you know, what about those people? What about the Jews? And so that's what we're looking at here in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. That's a picture of the Antichrist. We don't know who he is, but that's his picture, by the way. <laughs> what about Daniel's people, the Jews? Verse 1. At that time, the angel says, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And so we're going to take a look at this in a few more verses. We're going to kind of just dig into this. And try to understand what the angel was telling Daniel. Of course, Daniel, you know, thousands of years ago, everything that he's been told is history. We look back and some of the stuff that Dan was prophesied to Daniel, it's already occurred. But this stuff that we're looking at this morning has not occurred yet. And so at that time, at what time? Well, if you were to look back into verse 40 of chapter 11, it's the time of the end is what we're speaking about this morning. At that time, the time of the end. At that time, uh, Michael shall stand up. Well, the question is, who is Michael? I did something really interesting this week as I was preparing for this message. You know, I, I dig through my Bible study tools, and I, you know, of course, I'm reading scripture and I'm cross-referencing, and I'll go to commentaries to see, you know, what, what what's the common, what do the commentators say, you know, about these verses? And I discovered something really interesting this week. Who is Michael? One of the commentators that I that I like to go to quite frequently is a guy by the name of Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry lived in the 1700s. He's got a great Bible study, uh, um, excuse me, a great commentary. He's got some great stuff. This is what he says about this verse, about who Michael is. He says this, Jesus Christ shall appear his church's patron and protector. At that time when persecution is at the hottest, Michael shall stand up. The angel had told Daniel what a firm friend Michael was 
to the church. I don't know if you caught that. Matthew Henry here is saying that Michael is Jesus Christ. That Michael is just, it's just symbolic for Jesus Christ. Now to be fair to Matthew Henry and his commentary, it was written in 1706, his commentary, his Bible commentary. Again, it's a great resource. It's timeless. However, at the time that Matthew Henry wrote his commentary in 1706, Israel had not been a nation for about 1,700 years. So he's looking at these end-time prophecies, and he's reading about nation Israel that for 1,700 years has not even existed. And so how does a nation of Israel fit into end times prophecy? And Matthew Henry made a mistake, I believe. He thought the church must be spiritual Israel because there is no Israel at this point. And so he says the church must be spiritual Israel. That is replacement theology at its essence, where the belief is that the church has replaced all the blessings and the promises that at one time were given to Abraham and his offspring. And now we're the children of Abraham by faith, so it comes to us. Well, Matthew's Henry, excuse me, Matthew Henry's thinking is if Daniel's people in the end were Christians, because again, there's no nation of Israel, and, and uh, if, if, if Daniel's people in the end were Christians and not Jews, Michael must symbolize Christ. It's just kind of a logical thing for him to think. You know, Matthew Henry is not alone. There's another commentary that I like. It's a guy by the name of John Gill. What I like about John Gill's commentaries is he'll take a verse and he really breaks it down and he'll say it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. And then he'll say, well, I think it's this. But what he does, what I appreciate is it gives you a lot of different like viewpoints of what it could be. This is what he says about this verse. He says, the archangel who has all the angels of heaven under him and at his command, the son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, he shall stand up. So again, John Gill is saying, Michael must be Jesus Christ. There's an application that I think, hopefully it's kind of becoming obvious to you, is this. Be careful with commentaries. Be careful with commentaries. Commentaries are written by fallible people. The only thing that is infallible is God's word. You know, you may respect a, a well, you know, I, I like Warren Wiersbe. He's got a great commentary. There's a lot of good commentaries out there. Godly people that love the Lord Jesus Christ. They're rock solid in their faith, but they're fallible. And so we have to be careful to not depend on commentaries for your Bible study. It's a good resource. I go to commentaries. I, I glean from them, but I don't rely my faith and my, what my beliefs on what a commentator says because they're fallible. Again, very good point. God's word alone is infallible. Commentaries even written by the best people are fallible. I want to read something to you out of Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old. This is God speaking through Isaiah the prophet. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none, excuse me, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God's infallible word describes the nation of Israel in the end times. And I like what Paul says in Romans 4, verse 17. He says, God gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. 
God is speaking about a future nation of Israel before, and Israel had not been, you know, 2,000 years at the time when Paul wrote his gospel. Actually, yeah, 2,000. No, I back it up. We're 2,000 years later. <laughs> and the nation does not exist, but, or the nation didn't exist for 2,000 years. But there is now a physical nation of Israel once more. God's word is true. The prophecies of the last days are true, speaking about Israel. In fact, the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount in particular is the hottest and most contested piece of property on the planet. There, there, are, there are major groups of people that all are trying to claim that place as theirs. It's the hottest property on the planet. So there's an application here for you and I as well this morning, and that's this. If something seems dead in your life, something seems beyond hope, the good news is with God, all things are possible. Man, he calls things that are dead. He calls things that are dead to life. And uh, so with God, all things are possible. So if you're going through a difficult time right now and you're like, man, I, don't, I, don't, I can't see how I'm going to get past this. You know, maybe you've just received a diagnosis of a health thing that's like it's life-changing or something. With God, all things are possible. Put your trust in him. So going back to our question, who is Michael? Well, Michael from the scriptures, we're told, is an angel. And he's not just any angel, and he is certainly not John Travolta. Just want to get that straight. He's not John Travolta. What does scriptures tell us about Daniel, or excuse me, about uh, Michael? Well, Daniel 10, verse 13, he's called one of the chief princes. In Jude 1 verse 9, he's called the archangel who contends with the devil. In Revelation 12 verse 7, we learn that he has angels under his command. And here in Daniel 12 verse 1, his assignment is to watch over the people, over the Jewish people. And so that is who Michael is. We're also told in this verse, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And what the Bible is talking about, what Daniel is being told about, is what we know as the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, is called the time of Jacob's trouble. For you women that are studying uh, in the book of Revelation and Bible study, it's detailed in chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19. All those events are uh, talking about the great tribulation, that seven-year period that hasn't happened yet and is coming. Well, at that time, Scripture says, Michael shall stand up. What does it mean, Michael shall stand up? Well, to understand that, we need to turn to Revelation chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles and you want to, I'd encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to take a little detour into the New Testament this morning. A good understanding of Revelation and a good understanding of Daniel, they go hand in hand together. Well, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, we're told, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. You know, some people are kind of afraid of the book of Revelation because it's like, what's, you know, there's so much symbolism. What's symbolism? What's truth? We're told in verse 1 here that this is a sign. So this is a symbol. This isn't a woman that's in heaven floating around with all these stars around her head. It's symbolic. 
What is it symbolizing? Well, if you recall Joseph's dream back in Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 through 10, Joseph had a dream about uh, stars and 12 stars and angels or suns and moons and everything. And Jacob gives us the commentary on it. It was symbolic of Israel. So the woman here in verse 1 of chapter 12 is Israel. Verse 2, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign, again, here's another sign, appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Well, the dragon is Satan. It's a picture of Satan. It symbolizes Satan. And the seven heads and the ten horns should kind of ring a bell from our study in Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, that little horn. It's describing Antichrist and his kingdom. Verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. That is speaking about or symbolizing or giving us a picture of Satan's rebellion against God when he and a third of the angels followed him. And those angels, of course, are now what we know as demons. This is describing that in the beginning of verse 4. It also describes Satan's attempt to wipe out the Jewish race before the Messiah could be born. I mean, that's always been Satan's. You think, why is there so much anti-Semitism in the world? Because Satan hates Israel. And before Jesus Christ was born, he did everything he could to prevent the Messiah from being born. For example, in the book of Esther, you have a man by the name of Haman who tried with all his might to commit genocide over the entire, to wipe out the entire Jewish race. It wasn't just an earthly hatred of the Jewish people. It was satanic. It was a plot from Satan, the dragon. This also reminds us of King Herod's attempt to kill all the baby boys under two years and under in Bethlehem after Jesus Christ was born. Again, you have this king that's jealous and doesn't want any other king to you know, compete with him. And so you have that earthly factor, but it was a satanic plot. Satan was trying to wipe out the Messiah. So that's what that verse is speaking about. Verse 5, she bore a male child. Again, that's Israel. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. This is speaking about the birth and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting there in verse 5, the child was caught up. If you were a, a scholar of Greek, that's the word harpazo, which the Latin translation of that is rapture. Um, so that's the same word there. The child was caught up or harpazoed or raptured to God and his throne. Verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that she should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, 1,260 days, if you take that and divide it by 360 days a year because the prophetic years before the calendars were changed to 365, they were all 360-day years. And so if you divide 1,260 days by 360 days, you end up with 3.5 years, which is speaking about midway through the Great Tribulation when the Jews are going to realize that Antichrist is not the Messiah. For a time, they're going to believe he is because he's going to be influential in the next temple being built in Israel. 
they're going to think he's the Messiah. But halfway through, as we talked in another prophecy, he's going to come out and he's going to de declare that he's God. And he's going to declare that if people worship him. And all of a sudden, the Jewish people are going to recognize this guy is an imposter. And they're going to flee from Israel. Verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. And what we read in Daniel chapter 12 about at that time Michael shall stand up, I believe that's what we're talking about right here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. I believe this is when Michael, the archangel who looks over the people of Israel, is going to stand up to fight Satan and his angels on behalf of the nation of Israel who are going to be undergoing a tremendous persecution at that time. Verse 8, But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. I believe up until this point that we're talking about here during the Great Tribulation, Satan somehow, I can't explain how, but somehow he is able to stand before the Father and accuse believers. Anytime you and I commit sin, Satan is right there going, look, that's one, of your, that's one of your children. Look what they're doing. The good news is, John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, that we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus. He's there. He's our lawyer. He's the one, every time you and I are accused by Satan, and those accusations, they're true. I do sin. I do blow it. I, I can't believe you know, that I did this or whatever it is. But Jesus Christ, our lawyer, is there and says, Father, I paid for that sin. I paid for it. He's our advocate. So good news there. Verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. This is referring to those tribulation martyrs, those that will come to faith during the tribulation. Verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Again, another three and a half years is what that is speaking about. There's going to be, you know, we thought, you know, the Holocaust was terrible. But this final persecution of the Jews is going to, the Holocaust is going to pale in comparison to this persecution that's going to occur during the second half of the Great Tribulation. But the woman, we're told, Israel, is given a place to hide in the wilderness from the presence of Satan. I happen to believe that that is Selah in Moab, which is Petra, the city of Petra in modern-day Jordan. And there's an interesting prophecy in Isaiah 16, verse 4. It speaks about Selah, which is the ancient name for Petra. It says this, Isaiah 16, verse 4, Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. 
be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. Now, I'm not saying it is, but I believe that, there's, that this is what this is speaking about. The children of Israel are going to flee to Jordan during the second half of the Great Tribulation. Well, coming back, we'll turn back to Daniel chapter 12. We'll come back to where we were. At that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Again, during the great tribulation, at that time, your people shall be delivered. Well, we know from Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, that there are, will be 144,000 Jews who will be spared during the great tribulation. We also know from Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5, that they are males, because the Bible says they're not defiled by women, and they are also first fruits to God and the Lamb. And what I believe this is speaking about is these Jewish men, 144,000 of them, are going to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, and they're going to be evangelists during the Great Tribulation, and God is going to spare them miraculously during the Tribulation to evangelize the nation of Israel and, in fact, the entire world. We also know from Romans 11, verse 25 and 26, that there will be a national turning of the Jewish people to Jesus Christ, their Messiah, at the end of the Great Tribulation. Not only are the Jewish people going to be saved, many will be saved during the Great Tribulation, but we also understand from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, that there will be many from all nations that will be saved during the Tribulation. All nations, all races, all nationalities. Revelation 7 verse 9, John saw this, a great multitude, no one can number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And then in verse 13, he's told, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So there is going to be, I believe, there's going to be a great harvest of souls, both Jewish and Gentile, during the Great Tribulation. But it's going to be tough because the majority of them, save those 144,000 Jewish evangelists, they're probably, all of them are going to be martyred for their faith. At that time, your people shall be delivered. And it says, everyone who was found written in the book. Written in the book. That's interesting. Here's an application for you and I. God records people and their deeds. There, if you go through and do a Bible, I encourage you, not, not right now, but later this afternoon, if you've got nothing else to do, you want to do a Bible study on all the books that are mentioned in scriptures. There is a lot of heavenly books in numerous places in the Bible. And I'm going to show us a few, look at a few of them. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 31 through 33, says, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Psalm 60, or excuse me, 56, verse 8. You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. 
Are they not in your book? All those things that you and I, the, the heartbreak that we go through as believers, the struggles, our wandering, the things that happen, God records them. They are recorded in heaven. He hasn't forgotten about you or I. I love this one. Malachi 3, verse 16. Oh, excuse me. Psalm 69, verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. There's another. There's a few more of these also. But I like this one. Malachi 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. This is being recorded right now in heaven. We're gathered together. We're meditating on the Lord's name. You and I that fear the Lord. We get together for Bible studies. You get together with one-on-one with someone. You're discipling or you're just getting together and you're sharing. Hey, what's the Lord done to you and your, you know, for you in your life? And you're, you're, man, God's recording it. He's listening. Hey, they're talking about me. He's writing it down. It's being recorded in heaven. Jesus told this to his disciples, Luke 10, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. God records people and their deeds. So what book is Michael describing to Daniel? Again, it's in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. All these different books, all these recordings. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And then if you skip down to verse 15 of chapter 20, it says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So, in other words, all of your and my deeds are recorded in books, heavenly books. Everything, our thoughts, our motives, our actions, our words, they're recorded. And man will be judged by those deeds unless their name is written in the book of life. Unless their name is written. And we'll talk about the book of life in a little bit later. Verse 2 of Daniel chapter 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And one thing I want to tell you about verse 2 is don't confuse many as being opposed to all. In other words, you know, many but not all are going to be, are going to uh, shell awake. That word many, it's an adjective that can mean many. It can also mean much or great or long or mighty. The fact of the resurrection is this. All will be resurrected. Everyone is going to be resurrected. Not all at the same time. And not all for the same purpose, but everyone will be resurrected at some point. I did a little bit of a Bible study here myself. I, I looked at the different mentions of the resurrection of resurrections in the New Testament. And I came across seven resurrections in the New Testament. Of course, seven's always a significant number, so I'm like, oh, that's that's kind of interesting. And we're gonna look at them. This morning now, the seven resurrections mentioned in the New Testament. You'll notice, though, by the way, there's going to be two that I don't mention. One is Lazarus, and the other was the young, late, young girl that Jesus rose. Those, I don't think, were resurrected. I think those were resuscitated, and I'll explain that in a few minutes. 
But the very first resurrection in recorded in scriptures is Jesus Christ. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 15, or yeah, 1 Corinthians 15. And he is the first fruits of the resurrection. That's why those that before him weren't resurrected. They died again, but Jesus Christ was the first fruits, the first with many to come after him. So that's the first resurrection, Jesus Christ. Then we have a second resurrection, which is very interesting. It's only recorded in Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 to 53, and that is a token, symbolic resurrection of saints who died in Jerusalem. It's fascinating because there's only a few verses that talks about it. None of the other Gospels write about it. We don't hear anything about it in the epistles. But Matthew records that when Jesus died on the cross, there was a great earthquake and graves were opened at the time in Jerusalem after the earthquake. And then it says in verse 53, after Jesus rose from the dead, these saints that were in these tombs opened, the resurrected saints, many of them came up and they started appearing to people in Jerusalem. That's all we know about them. You can speculate as much as you want till the cows come home, but that's all we're told about them. Um, why I think they're a resurrection, uh, you know, I, I was reading one place where the, someone said, you know, they, they, they probably rose and then they ascended into heaven, which could be, but again, that's man's interpretation, so who knows? So I'm not going to, uh, somebody's trying to call me on my phone here. <laughs> my phone comes in on my iPad, so that's kind of like, what? <laughs> Anyways. So that was an interesting resurrection, but that is a resurrection of some sort. That's the second one. The third resurrection is the resurrection of the dead in Christ, which are the church age saints. That's prior to the great tribulation. It's recorded in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That caught up is the word harpazo, which is, we call it raptured. So that's the third resurrection is, that's recorded in scriptures, and that's the church-age saints prior to the, um, prior to the Great Tribulation. And I just got to tell you this, you're going to want to either be one of those that's caught up or that is in that resurrection group three. You're going to want to be in this because this is the church age. We are in the church age right now. Well, how do you become part of that resurrection group three? Or how do you get caught up? By that? That's by having your name written in the book of life. It's pretty simple. Well, how do you get your name written in the book of life? That's really simple too. I'm glad you guys asked. It's as simple as ABC. First of all, A, you just have to acknowledge or admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And then B, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again. Pretty simple for us, of course. Jesus Christ, he, shed his, he gave his life for that. And then C, call upon the Lord, which is speaking about praying to him, confessing your sin, asking him into your heart to be your Lord and your Savior. A, B, C is pretty simple. That's how your name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is recorded in the book of life, you will be part of that resurrection chapter, uh, that third resurrection group. Or if Jesus comes back before then, 
which I pray, I mean, if we're alive, I should say, before that happens, we'll get caught up with those. It's funny, I have a friend who, uh, they started a Calvary Chapel around the same time I did, and, and uh, they ended up, you know, we had a, uh, well, we were meeting in a hotel at the time, but they ended up buying a, or rent, no, I think they bought a funeral home. And I was talking to him, and he goes, yeah, he goes, we love it here because we're going to see the dead in Christ rise first. I mean, there's, it's just going to happen. So, like, Good way to look at it. Anyways. So that's the three resurrections. What's the fourth resurrection in scriptures in the New Testament? That is the two witnesses during the great tribulation. Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 13. We're told that they finish their testimony. They're sent to the earth. They, they give a testimony. Um, it's, they can withhold rain. Uh, people try to storm. They try to, try to attack them, and they can, they can breathe fire out and kill their attackers. Well, when they finish their testimony, Scripture tells us that the Antichrist is going to make war against them and overcome them and kill them. And after three and a half days, they are going to be resurrected in full view of all their enemies, they're probably on live on CNN or something, they'll be, they'll be resurrected in full view of all their enemies and they're going to ascend to heaven in a cloud. That's the fourth resurrection in the New Testament. The fifth resurrection is the Old Testament saints. And that's what we're talking about here in Revelation, or excuse me, Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I believe that this is after the Great Tribulation is when the, the Old Testament saints are resurrected. Why do I say that? Well, in Zechariah chapter 14, in verse 4 of chapter 14, it says, at the end of the great tribulation, Jesus Christ is going to physically stand on the Mount of Olives. And you can read that in Zechariah 14, verse 4. Jesus Christ will physically stand on the Mount of Olives. In verse 9, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Then, if you were to read Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, Job is an Old Testament saint. He says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job, the man that, you know, if you read his life, the terrible things that happened in his life and all that he went through, and here he's looking forward to the resurrection of his Savior. And he says, I'm going to see him standing. I'm going to see him standing on the earth. So I believe this supports the view that the Old Testament saints will be resurrected after the great tribulation at the very beginning of the millennial or the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. The sixth resurrection mentioned in scriptures are the tribulation saints. And they're the ones that were martyred for their faith. Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So we've just talked about six different resurrections in the uh, New Testament and the last one is the seventh 
resurrection, and that is of the wicked dead. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So like I said earlier, Everyone is going to be resurrected. All will be resurrected. But as Daniel, as the angel tells Daniel, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. The wicked dead will be resurrected for what the Bible calls the second death. And this is kind of a, uh, I've seen this on a bumper sticker once and I'm like, I like that, but it's so true. If you're born twice, you only have to die once. If you're only born once, you will die twice. Well, of course, I'm talking about being born again. And if you'll notice in the scripture, it also says, calls it everlasting contempt. And the second death is everlasting. The lake of fire is everlasting. There is no scriptural support for, for uh, the lake of fire being a temporary you know, abode for people. Like a, like a purgatory type of thing. There is no scriptural support for that. In fact, just the opposite. You think about the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, the Levitical sacrifices, the price for sin was never paid for. It was just covered over. That's why the Levitical priests, every year, there's sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Why? Because the price for sin was never paid for under the old covenant until Jesus Christ died on the cross. And he died once for all, for all our sin. And so if someone rejects Christ's substitutional sacrifice for their sin... They don't want Christ's salvation. They don't want his sacrifice. They're going to be paying for their sin forever because it'll be a perpetual thing. You can't, you'll, they'll never have finished paying it off. They'll continually forever and ever and ever be paying the price for their sin. This is a big deal. Verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is one of the beautiful examples of Hebrew poetry in Scripture, and it's known as parallelism. Parallelism. It means two words or more lines, two or, uh, the words of two or more lines of text are directly related in some way. And if you go through Old Testament Scriptures, you'll find these, you'll find these uh, examples in Hebrew poetry of parallelism. The message of the text is in the larger passage, passage excuse me, and its overall point uh, or impact is in the whole thing rather than individual words and, and, or single lines. Let me give you, in the case of this, verse 3. It says, The wise shall shine like the f uh, brightness of the firmament, 
Uh, well, who are the wise? The, the, the full verse gives us, the wise are those who turn many to righteousness. They are going to shine like the stars forever. You know, everyone whose name is written in the book of life, if you've given your heart to Jesus Christ this morning, your name is recorded in that book of life. You will be resurrected to eternal life with Christ. You will enjoy eternity with Jesus Christ forever. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11 verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15, describes that there are some believers whose works of hay, wood, and stubble is going to be burned. And he says they'll, they'll suffer loss, but they themselves will be saved, yet so as through fire. What is the wood, hay, and stubble that he is talking about? It's those things that people strive for that have no eternal benefit. All those things that you're striving for, you're saving for, you're, it's, it's not bad to strive for things and to save things. It's, it's, I'm not talking about that. But if that is your focus is on the temporary things of this world, those things aren't going to have any impact in eternity. They're all, that's the hay, wooden stubble that'll be burned. There are going to be rewards in heaven. And you might be here thinking, you know what? I don't need any, any extra rewards, man. Just being in heaven is reward enough. You know, when you've put your effort into something like, uh, for example, you know, you, you save really hard for your first house. And you get your house and, and then you've got all these plans for upgrading it. Or, you know, you, you put all this effort into these home, this home that you've bought and stuff. You really appreciate your home as opposed to, you know, you get out of school and someone just says, hey, here's a house for you. And you're given a house. You, in both cases, you have a house. But in one, you've really put a lot of effort into you. Your heart's been poured into it. And you appreciate it much more than if it was just handed to you. It's, it's, I mean, you look at housing projects. People get homes, you know, given to them. And you look at, the, the, you look at how they look. They look run down. And you go to private home ownership, generally speaking, I'm not stereotyping, but generally speaking, people take much more care of things that they've invested into. Listen, if you are wise and focused on the eternal and turning many to righteousness, your capacity to enjoy heaven is going to be far greater than if you hadn't. And just as the wicked dead are going to pay the price for their sin forever, the wise who turn many to righteousness, the Bible says, are going to shine brightly in heaven forever. It's, a, it's an eternal thing. It'll always be that reward, that, that enjoyment, that, that greater capacity to enjoy heaven. Remember Moses, when he saw the glory of the Lord and he came down from Mount Sinai, his face reflected that glory. But you know, as soon as he left the presence of the Lord, it started fading. And so he would put a, a veil over it because they didn't want people to see the, the glow was fading. But here it says, those who are wise and turn many to righteousness, man, that glow is never going to fade throughout eternity. There, there's the, you know, you always try to get, the, I want to get that everlasting shine. There it is right here in scriptures. <laughs> so here's an application for you and I, I think over all of this that we've talked about. I don't know, some of you maybe just love prophecy. I know there's prophecy buffs. They go to prophecy conferences and they read prophecy books and they you know, watch prophecy videos or whatever. And they're, they're, I mean, prophecy, pro they, they love prophecy. There's nothing wrong with that. They love prophecy. 
But I got to tell you something. Prophecy is not meant to tickle your ears. It's not meant to entertain you or to get you all hyped up or anything. Prophecy is meant to trigger an action in light of prophecy. We know that Jesus Christ is returning soon. We look at the signs of the times. Man, he is, he's, he's coming, and it will be soon. We also know from this passage of Scripture that what we invest into, our, our lives into, some of that stuff, it's not going to make a, a hill of beans when it comes to eternity. But for you and I, if we're focused on the eternal, if that's, our, if that's our hope, if we're living in light of eternity, if we're trying to share Christ with our neighbors, our family members, I mean, inviting people to church, that's a pretty unthreatening way to do that. Or just, you know, my wife's great for this. She'll, she'll meet someone on the street and they'll be talking and she says, hey, can I pray for you? And they'll go, uh, yeah, I guess so. And then she'll start praying for them. It's things like that. You and I, man, we should be doing that because Jesus Christ is returning soon. And so before the worship team comes up, we're going to be celebrating communion here this morning as well. I want to just have a few moments where we just reflect on this passage of Scripture. And so I'm going to encourage us, let's just, let's just spend a few moments. You know, the great white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation chapter 20 all of the wicked dead. I mean, there's going to be, think about how many people have been alive on this planet since the beginning of creation. They are all in mass going to be standing before the throne being judged for their, for their works. And you might say, well, you know, I, I, you kind of feel safe in a crowd, but you, they're going to be judged individually. We're here in a small group, and yet the Lord is looking at each one of our hearts this morning. He knows, he, knows, he knows where you're at in your walk with him. He knows if you're focused on the eternal or if you're focused on the earthly. He hears, he, he records every time you share the Lord with someone. He's like, whoa, they're talking about me again. The Lord is paying attention. And so we're here as individuals. We're here together, but you're here as an individual before the Lord. And so let's just spend a couple moments and let's just pray to the Lord this morning. And then I'll have the worship team come up and we'll finish our service.